Well, Koto, hello and welcome to you all. Uh, it is a real privilege to be able to share with you today and I hope that you are truly blessed as you join with us in worship and as we look together in, at the Word. You know, over the last few weeks in our messages, we've spent some time talking about seasons, about the season we seem to be in as a church, as followers of Jesus, and quite simply as people on this planet. And in particular, a couple of weeks ago, our lead pastor, Carl Crocker, shared a word with us, which was very much a prophetic word speaking into our season. And he described it as a winter season in the natural, but it is also a winter season in the spiritual, a season where it may be harder to see evidence of growth and new life, but where we need to understand that there is seed being planted in the soil, that God is still doing things in the church locally and globally, that lives are still being transformed, and that we must not waste the season that we are in. And Carl began his message by talking about roller coasters. And he was saying that life has been a bit of a roller coaster over the last couple of years, and that maybe people have become overwhelmed by a sense of motion sickness, much as he was when he last rode a roller coaster a few years ago. And as Carl was sharing his roller coaster story, I couldn't help but be reminded of a roller coaster story of my own, which seems appropriate to share today. See, roughly five or so years ago, uh, our family had the amazing opportunity to have a few days holiday over on the Gold Coast in Australia. It was one of those dreams we'd had to be able to take our three kids there when they were old enough to really enjoy it. And our plan for the holiday had a really simple focus. We wanted to spend as much time as we could at the various theme parks over the six days that we had. So the very first morning that we were there, we all set off for SeaWorld. Now, the kids really hadn't done anything like this before. You know, uh, my wife Jo and I, we'd been to theme parks, we'd done stuff like this, but for the kids, it was really, really new. And as we started journeying through the park, there were lots of oohs and ahs and wows and what's that and what's that and can we go over there and can we do that and can we eat that and can we buy that you know they loved the atmosphere they loved the sights and sounds and of course all the sea creatures the sea lions and turtles and polar bears oh my my wife joe actually got kissed by a sea lion that's not something that happens every day and all of that was great. All of it was really fun. But then it was time to get into the really exciting stuff, the rides. You know, theme parks are all about the rides. And as we were walking through the park, we came around a corner and we found the entrance to the Storm Coaster. And it's like, oh, kids, look, you're all tall enough. We can all go on the Storm Coaster. And they were like, yay, let's go. So that was great. So we lined up for this ride. And after a few minutes in the queue, we're all climbing into the roller coaster car or pod or whatever it's supposed to be called. And the way this ride is set up is that the queue leads into what is basically a cave. And the, the roller coaster track just runs through a stream that circles around the cave. And the roller coaster cars are shaped like jet boats that you climb into because that's how the whole ride had been themed as if it was this jet boat ride. So we climbed into the, the roller coaster pod and it was two seats wide and maybe three or four rows deep in each pod. 
And I was sitting next to our youngest, our daughter Brianna. Uh, Ethan, our oldest, was in front of us, and Joe and Lucas were behind us. And we had all the harnesses done, and the safety bar was in place, and all the checks were done, and that. They've, they've set us off on the trip, and we start floating around the little stream for a bit. And then as we came to the exit of the cave, as we started to come out into the light, we get attached to the roller coaster proper, and we go start going up the long, steep climb to the top of the roller coaster. And about halfway through the climb, suddenly I hear this voice from behind me say something that I will never, ever forget. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. I don't want to do this. Oh no, we may not have done a very good job of explaining exactly what the storm coaster was. Lucas thought that the whole ride was just floating around the stream in the cave. And suddenly he discovered that there was a very large gap between his expectations and his reality. And he starts freaking out, I wanna get off. And he literally starts struggling with his harness, with his seatbelt. No, buddy, it's too late now. You have to stay on the ride. You have to wait until it's over. And we try to reassure him, it'll be fun. It'll be exciting. You're perfectly safe. You're really gonna love it. And thankfully, that kind of worked for a bit, and he started to, to settle down, and he stopped struggling, but he was still freaking out a little bit. And as we crested over the top and began our rapid descent, he just sort of started to, again, freak out. This is going way faster than I thought. And Joe and I did our best to accentuate the fun by cheering and hollering and whooping as we ran around. I can see my house from here, and it's more fun if you wave your hands around like this. Just anything to distract him from his panic. And to be honest, it was working pretty well until we got to the very last part of the ride. You rise one more time before you look down a very long, steep drop. It feels very fast, and it looks longer than it probably is. And at the bottom of the drop, you're staring straight back into the mouth of the cave, which you scream into with an almighty splash as you hit the water. And it's all fun and games for everybody, unless, of course, you're already feeling terrorized. So that was pretty much the last straw for Lucas. He couldn't get out of there fast enough. I'm never going on a roller coaster ever again. Oh dear. Remember, this is uh, partway through day one of six, where our whole plan is to go to theme parks. And for the rest of the day, any time we were even in sight of the storm coaster, Lucas would cover his eyes so he didn't even have to see this thing that tormented him. But before we left the park, we all decided we wanted to go on it one more time because really it was our favorite ride in the whole park, except for Lucas, of course. And as we walked towards it to go on it again, he ran from pillar to pillar, from wall to wall, anywhere he could go so he didn't have to have this thing in sight. And then suddenly he came running over to me and he put both his little hands on my arm and he prayed, dear God, Please don't let my daddy die. And then he took off and ran behind a pillar to hide again. And I looked at Joe and I said, I'm sorry, darling, 
we broke Lucas. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. I think most of us can realistically look back at the last two and a half years and even in particular the last six or seven months, this winter season that Carl was talking about a few weeks ago and say with some confidence that this is not what I thought it was going to be. There's a gap between our expectations and the reality. And the truth is that this gap is something we have to deal with all the time. Our expectations are in one place, but our reality is in another, and we have to find a way to live with that gap in between. And that would be my message title today, Living with the Gap Between. In the Bible, we see a number of examples where people had to deal with a reality that was different to their expectations. Some dealt with it quite well, and some did not. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read the story of a man named Naaman. So 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 and 9 to 12. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Over the next few verses, we read that Naaman got permission to go, uh, and he went and saw the king of Israel, and he got some gifts together and all sorts of things in order to go see the prophet. Then in verse 9, so Naaman went, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So this man, Naaman, was not an Israelite. He didn't have a relationship with or even a knowledge of the Lord, but the Lord was with him in regards to his role as commander of Aram's armies. When he heard about someone who could heal him of his leprosy, he went about doing everything he could to go and see this man. He got permission from his master. He gathered great gifts of silver and gold and fine clothing. He even got a letter of introduction from his king. And he arrived at Elisha's house with great faith. He truly expected that he would be healed because of what he'd heard. He just had in his mind a picture of what that would look like. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. It's quite specific, this vision that he has. It's quite grand too, maybe even a little dramatic. But Naaman clearly believed that the cure 
the healing, the miracle would take place. But when Elisha sent another person out with this message, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, every part of Naaman's expectation was dashed. Naaman had five different steps in his mind as to how it would take place, and none of those steps were followed. Elisha didn't come out. He didn't stand. He didn't call on the name of the Lord his God. He didn't wave his hand over the spot, and Naaman wasn't cured of his leprosy right there and then. Instead, he was told he had to go somewhere else. There was a delay. There was a gap. He had to wait and do something very mundane that he could have done without even having traveled all this way. So he turned and went off in a rage. And that could easily have been the end of the story. This isn't what he thought it was going to be. But Naaman was very lucky to have friends and servants there with him who talked him down. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 13 and 14 say this. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The gap between nearly cost Naaman this miracle, this healing. He was so focused on the gap between what he thought was going to happen and what actually happened that he nearly abandoned his pursuit of healing completely. If he hadn't listened to his servants and then been obedient to what had been asked of him, the leprosy would have remained. As you read on further in the story, Naaman goes back to Elisha to thank him and in fact promises to only worship the Lord God from that day forward. Because of the way it took place, because of the obedient step that Naaman took, he was brought into a place of relationship with the Lord. You know, sometimes our expectation is that God will change the world around us, will change our circumstances, whereas in fact God is much more interested in making a change within us. See, Naaman expected a change in his condition. Naaman had faith for a change in his situation. He believed that there would be a change in his reality. But not only did God bring about a change in his condition, he also changed Naaman's heart. The gap between expectation and reality isn't the only gap we experience in our Christian walk. It isn't the only gap we have to live with. There's also a gap sometimes between what the Word of God says and what the world around us says. We have to contend with that. In fact, we probably have to contend with that gap daily. There is the gap between our prayers and their answers. There is sometimes a gap between what we understand and believe in our faith and our experiences in life. There is a gap even between the way we desire to live out our faith and then the choices that we sometimes fall into. And there's another gap that I believe many of us experience, which is the gap between God's promises and their fulfillment. The gap between what God has said he will do and the time when it comes to pass. 
We see many examples of this too in Scripture. In Genesis, we read that Abraham was promised a son, and in fact promised descendants that would outnumber the stars. But then Abraham and Sarah spent 25 years living in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. And that gap was filled with many challenges, many difficulties, and times when Abraham took matters into his own hands. I'm sure there were moments when Abraham said, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. But eventually the promise was fulfilled. And in Hebrews chapter 6, we read this. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. In Exodus, we read that when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt to go to the promised land, there was a gap. A delay of 40 years in the wilderness before the promise was finally fulfilled. And there were certainly times in the desert when the people were crying out that it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Exodus chapter 16 verses 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Israelite people were so stuck in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment, so focused on the gap between their expectations and their reality, that they started to describe slavery as sitting around pots of meat and eating all they wanted. That's what they started to desire, to go back into slavery in Egypt because they got so stuck in the gap. We read in 1 Samuel about the life of David. And we see in his life, there was a gap between the promise and the fulfillment. In fact, we see it more than once. At the age of 15, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel, but it was another 15 years before that came to fruition. And when he defeated Goliath, David was promised the king's daughter in marriage, but it was quite some time before that was promised. Maybe even years, there was another gap, another period of waiting. And even then, after that gap, David had to overcome significant obstacles before it happened. We, like these guys, have to live in those gaps between, between the promise and the fulfillment, between the expectation and the reality, between the word of God and what the world says. And how we live out our days in those gaps will make a significant impact on our lives and the lives of those around us. It is in those gaps between, in those times of waiting, in those winter seasons that God can bring great transformation within us. So what should we do when we find ourselves living in a gap between. What are we supposed to do then while we wait? Well, there are five things that I believe throughout Scripture we've been told that we can do while we wait. Five things that we can do when we find ourselves living in the gap between. The first one is that we can stand firm. James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 says, 
Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. While we wait, we must be patient and stand firm. Like the farmer waits for the autumn and spring rains, we too can wait for the season to change. And we can continue to hold firm to the promises that God has given us. Don't waver, don't get despondent, don't shrink back, but instead stand firm on the word of God. As Carl shared the other week, faithfulness is the seed of fruitfulness. In the waiting season, remain faithful. Stand firm in the Lord. Allow this season to be one that grows and matures your faith. The second thing we can do while we wait is we can take courage. Psalm 27 verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Jesus told us that in this world we will have trouble but to take heart for he has overcome the world. When we're in a place of waiting in the gap between, draw your strength and courage from the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As we spend time in his presence, as we rest in his peace, and as we abide in his love, we can surrender all our fears and burdens to him. We can take courage. The third thing we can do is we can trust. Jeremiah 17, verse seven and eight. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. They will be like a tree planted When you trust God, you can stand firm. It can be tempting in the gap between to start to take matters into your own hands, to start start trying to take control. But when we trust him, we are surrendering our will to his will, declaring again that he is sovereign, that he is Lord. And those who trust him will be like a tree planted. The fourth thing we can do while we're waiting is we can hope. Lamentations 3, verses 24 to 26. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Psalm 130, verse five, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. In Psalm 33, verses 20 to 22, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. See, while we wait, we can wait expectantly. We can wait with faith-filled anticipation. We can wait with hope that God is going to do something, that he is going to fulfill his word, that he is going to bring transformation, if not to our circumstances, then to our hearts. 
we wait in hope for the Lord. And the fifth thing we can do while we're living in the gap between, while we wait, is that we can worship. Psalm 34 verses one and two. I will praise the Lord no matter what happens. I will constantly speak of his glories and grace. I will boast of all his kindness to me. Let all who are discouraged take heart. In all circumstances, we can praise and worship the Lord. He is worthy of our worship no matter what. So in our gap between, in our waiting, in our winter season, we can continue to lift up and extol and exalt and glorify and praise and worship the mighty name of Jesus, for he is always worthy. You know, a lot of good can happen in the gap between. A lot of powerful, powerful things can happen while we wait on the Lord. In our winter season, in our time of waiting, in our gap between, we can stand firm, we can take courage, we can trust, we can hope, and we can worship. In a moment, we're going to invite you again to join with us in a time of worship. And as we do so, I want to encourage you to take a moment to wait on the Lord, that we would rest in him, that we would put our hope in him. Take a moment to be reminded of his goodness, to put our trust in him even if our circumstances are not what we expected, to be reminded of his promises even if there is a delay in their fulfillment. And as we worship, I encourage you to open your hearts to him afresh to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you and to let God speak to you. I just have one last passage to read from Psalm 62. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we can find rest in you, that we can wait in your presence, that we can find our peace in you. And Lord, as we spend our days living in the gap between, the gap between our expectation and our reality, the gap between your promise and its fulfillment, God, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit and the goodness of your presence, we would be able to continue to stand firm on your word, to take courage and be encouraged by you, to put our trust in you, to place our hope in you, and in all things to continue to worship you, for you are always worthy of our praise and our worship. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would minister to those who are stuck in one of those gaps. Those who have been struggling with things not being what they thought it was going to be. Lord, I ask that the peace and power of your presence would be upon them. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.